There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. There are many Hindu people in our community running a lot of the convenience stores and motels in our area, and I'm drawn to them. I love to share the gospel with them, I suppose, because I was so deeply involved in Hinduism at one point in my life, many years ago when I was searching for the truth. I ran a yoga ashram. I studied under an Indian guru. I devoted myself to the pursuit of, quote-unquote, God consciousness, by the means of yoga meditation and yogic exercises. And so I relate to that culture. I understand the heart of Hinduism and the heart of Hindu people. When I begin to share Jesus with them, when I start into an explanation of the gospel, usually they respond with the statement, there is only one God. Now, most Christians wouldn't know the subtleties of the interpretation of that statement, because on the surface, it sounds absolutely true, because there is only one God. And yet, different people can make that same statement and mean completely different things by it. For instance, what does a Hindu mean when he says, there is only one God? What does a Sikh mean when he says, there is only one God? What does a Muslim mean when he says, there is only one God. And what does a Christian mean when he says there is only one God? We need to differentiate between the subtle interpretations attached to that statement on the basis of the worldview, the belief system that the speaker of that statement has. That makes all the difference. So what does a Hindu mean when he or she says, there is only one God. Now, within that worldview, there is an ultimate reality referred to as Brahman. Brahman is an impersonal being, a non-thinking, non-hearing, non-speaking, non-emotional, non-volitional, non-responsive cosmic energy force. And out of Brahman proceed, the traditional number is 330 million gods and goddesses. And because all of these deities can trace their origin back to this impersonal oversoul referred to as Brahman, therefore the logic is that there is only one God because ultimately on the highest level, all of them stream forth from Brahman and ultimately will return to Brahman. And of course, any particular worldview and any deity that is worshipped in any religion would be included in that idea. So that's what a Hindu means when he or she says there is only one God, that Brahman, this cosmic energy force, is the source of all deities that are worshipped. Now, what does a Sikh mean when he or she says there is only one God? Well, Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, 
taught that the God of the Muslims, Allah, and the God of Hindus was one and the same God. He traveled all over the Far East and the Mideast promoting this idea, this concept, that the God of the Hindu and the God of the Muslim was one and the same. In fact, Guru Nanak said there is no Hindu and there is no Muslim. The fifth guru of Sikhism, Guru Arjan, said, My body and breath belong to Allah, to Ram, the God of both. And Ram is a god in Hinduism. He's the seventh incarnation of Vishnu. And so, once again, the emphasis in Sikhism is that these gods that are worshipped are all really the same god, regardless of what name is applied to them, what personality is assigned to them. It's all just the same eternal, universal creator god. So the view of Hinduism and the view of Sikhism are all inclusive. And whenever a Hindu or a Sikh says there is only one God, it reaches out and embraces all the religions of the world. Now, what does a Muslim mean when he or she says there is only one God? Well, the Muslim faith is very exclusive. In other words, it excludes all other religions and all other interpretations of the Godhead as being false and acknowledges only Allah as the true God. However, in Islam, Allah is absolutely separate from all the universe. Contrary to in Hinduism, the belief is pantheism, that the universe is an emanation of God, so everything has a divine essence. Everything is God in manifestation. Well, in Islam, God is absolutely separate from the creation. And one of the worst sins you can commit in Islam is a sin called shirk, spelled S-H-I-R-K, which is assigning divinity to anything or anyone other than Allah. That's why it is completely incompatible with Christianity, because we believe that Jesus was God incarnate in human flesh. And so that would be completely unacceptable to a Muslim. So now you have someone making the statement, there is only one God that absolutely assigns the right interpretation of that statement to the Islamic faith alone. Now, what does a Christian mean when a believer in Jesus says there is only one God? Something absolutely different than every religion I've mentioned so far. Because only in Christianity do you find the concept of the triune nature of God, that God is comprised of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet these three are one God. And when you or I, as a believer in Jesus, say there is only one God, we are referring to a very exclusive worldview. It's not blendable with Hinduism. It's not blendable with Sikhism. It's not blendable with the Muslim faith. It stands by itself. Let me explain it to you with a beautiful and helpful analogy. There is only one solar system of which the planet Earth is a part. Yet there have been different interpretations of the nature of that solar system. For instance, in the second century, Ptolemy defined the solar system as being Earth-centric, 
where the earth was in the center and the sun revolved around the earth along with the other planets on a backdrop of unmoving stars. A thousand years later, Copernicus offered a different point of view. He said, no, it's heliocentric, it's sun-centric. The sun is at the center of the solar system and the earth as well as the other planets revolve around the sun. Now, these two viewpoints cannot be blended together. They cannot both be right. One is right at the expense of the other being wrong. Now, both Ptolemy and Copernicus believed in the same solar system. They sought to define the same solar system. But just because they had a similar viewpoint or a similar object they were defining doesn't mean that both of them are correct. And in like manner, Hinduism and Sikhism and Islam and Christianity are all casting their eyes the direction of the creator of the universe and defining the nature of the creator, defining the nature of the Godhead. But all of these interpretations cannot be right. One has to be right at the expense of the other being wrong. And I testify to you that I have discovered the definition of the Godhead within the biblical worldview to be the correct one. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's the correct view. So is the name you use for God important? Or could you just use any name and connect with him? Well, the answer to that is absolutely no. You cannot use just any name and connect to the Lord God Almighty. Because Jesus said, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He did not say whosoever shall call on a name for God, but the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be delivered. Because the name you use is connected to the doctrinal base associated with that name. And if you use a name for deity that is connected to myths, then God's not going to honor that, nor is he going to respond to that. Let me give you a blatant example. For instance, within Hinduism, you have traditional stories about Krishna. Krishna is one of the chief gods in the Hindu pantheon, and it is taught, according to the myth, that he had literally 16,108 wives while on the earth and had 10 children by every one of those wives in separate palaces around the world. Now, if you were to approach God using that name, if God responded, then he would be validating the myth that goes along with that particular personality referred to as a deity, which God is not going to do. You have to have the right revelation of the name of God. When you use the name Jesus, it is connected to the doctrinal base of the biblical story of his virgin birth, his death on the cross for the redemption of the human race, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, and his promise to come back again. And so, the reason God responds to that correct name, which instantly in the Hebrew is Yeshua, which means salvation, is because 
that very name embraces the right revelation of what God has done, is doing, and will yet do in this world. The name is of the utmost importance. I believe that many Hindus sincerely love God. I believe that many Muslims sincerely love God. But there is a huge difference between loving God and actually knowing God. Decades ago, when I was a yoga teacher, I loved God. I passionately loved God. I spent my entire day seeking God, searching for God through the various means that I was given through the guru I studied under that was supposed to bring me into this experience. But loving God and knowing God are two different things altogether. And I only came into the knowledge of God when I used the correct name, when I called on the name which is above every name, which is the name of Jesus Christ. I believe it would be a good thing at this point to bring out a verse in the story of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, he told the woman, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, this whole episode is about whether or not all people of all religions are actually worshiping the same God. They may be casting love the direction of who they conceive the creator of the universe to be. So in a very generic sense, they may be inclining their heart the same direction. But in order to be a true worshiper, you have to fulfill this mandate. See, Jesus told the woman at the well, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. In other words, he was indicating that the Samaritans had false definitions, false interpretations of the nature of the Godhead, and therefore could not be true worshipers. But then he said, the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, if you'll go to your Bibles, you'll see that the word spirit is lowercase s. It's not talking about worshiping God under the power of the Holy Spirit, which is certainly important, but it's talking about having a regenerated spirit from which to worship God. Jesus is talking about the new covenant. When we are born again, when God puts a new spirit in us, and when he saturates that spirit with his spirit, then that's part of what qualifies us to be true worshipers, because now, instead of being dead in trespasses and sins, we have this new regenerated spirit inside of us that is in communion with the creator of the universe. But he also said that true worshipers will worship in the truth. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, there's five ways that we worship God in truth. Number one, we worship him in sincerity. To be true is to be genuine, to be sincere, not going through the motions, not just going to church to be at church, but to be a true worshiper is to be totally sincere and pouring out your heart before God. Number two, to worship God in truth is to worship him with honesty, bearing your heart, 
being totally transparent in the presence of God, not hiding any secret sin. Number three is to worship him with correct methods, not using mantra meditation, mindlessly repeating some phrase over and over again, not trying to meditate on the third eye or using some other new age esoteric method to reach God, but only seeking him according to the biblical mandate. Number four, worshiping God in the truth is to worship him by understanding or comprehending the correct revelation of his name and his nature. And that's what we've really emphasized on this episode, that you have to have the correct understanding of his name and his nature to be a true worshiper. And then number five, to worship God in the truth means to apply the truth of God's word to your life and to walk in the revelation of that truth every single day as you seek to be a disciple. So hopefully, if you get in a conversation and someone says, there is only one God, and it's an all-inclusive statement, you'll know how to respond to that now and show them the exclusiveness and the uniqueness of Yeshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.